Welcome to season five of Malahide Theology. I am Broderick Greer, your host. And this is just an exciting day because I get to introduce you to Christina Rutland, our youth minister and communication support at St. John's Cathedral, who will be joining us from time to time here on Malahide Theology. Welcome to Malahide Theology, Christina. Thanks, Broderick. I'm excited to be here. So a part of Christina's role with us is the planning of our episodes. And Christina, if you could just tell us a little bit about Tink Tinker, our guest on um, today's episode. Dr. Tink Tinker is Professor Emeritus at Iliff School of Theology. Um, and he teaches courses in American Indian cultures, history, and religious traditions, as well as justice and peace studies. And he's a frequent speaker in both the US and internationally. And he really painted a great picture for us, the difference between sort of an indigenous worldview versus a Euro-Christian worldview. And I think my favorite thing that he spoke about was how the indigenous worldview really encompasses like looking out for your entire community versus sort of the Euro-Christian worldview, which is very individualistic. Um, and I think that we can all really keep in mind now how we can be looking out for our entire community and not just ourselves. And community um, for Dr. Tinker and for so many people who are working on the climate crisis does not end with human beings. Right. Um, it extends to the whole, to all living beings um, and for Christians, the whole created order. Um, and so I invite our listeners um, into a, a special season of Mile High Theology in which we look specifically at tackling the climate crisis, human beings' roles not only in creating the climate crisis, but also um, some hopeful stories about human people um, and organizations and communities that are seeking to heal um, our climate. Welcome to season five of Malahi Theology. I'm Broderick Greer, your host. I am joined by Tink Tinker. This season, we are focusing on the climate crisis. It's something that has come home to so many of us, specifically during the pandemic. And a lot of us, I think myself included, assumed, okay, we're 2040, 2050, um, things will get much worse if we don't course correct now. Um, and obviously 2050 is here. Um, from what we've seen with smoke in our air and um, a lot of things that we'll discuss over this season. Environmental racism. Um, next month, our guests will talk to us about how indigenous youth are leading, um, in many ways, the effort to heal our planet. Um, but today, Tink Tinker is with us to discuss and set the foundation for the Euro-Christian origins of the current climate crisis. And, and Tink, when we talked a few days ago to prepare for tonight, you said that you wanted to start 200 years before the Industrial Revolution and 40 or 50 years before the Mercantile Revolution. 
at the point when the first Euro Christians made a beachhead at Jamestown. So if you would, um, start us off there. I told you already that I'm Osage, American Indian. Our worldview is different from yours. What Roderick referenced as the Euro-Christian world is your world. And by Euro-Christian, I don't mean to name your religion. I really mean that as a sociological designation. That is the European whole that has emerged from two millennia on the European continent and 529 years in this hemisphere. Same worldview. And that worldview shows up in so many different cultures in Europe because the German culture is different from the French, the Polish is different from the Portuguese, etc., etc., but their worldview is the same. And you can see that when you go to uh, one of the nuclear laboratories in Europe, whether it's in Italy or in Sweden, or go to one of the uh, uh, astrophysical laboratories where they have these huge microscopes, uh, uh, telescopes, where they're interpreting the universe. And you'll find the rooms filled with people from all those different countries. Same here. If you go to Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, you're liable to find an Italian and a Danish physicist working side by side in an American laboratory because it's all the same worldview. They do science exactly the same way. They've learned from one another. And what Newton was saying in England was built on what Galileo had already done in Italy. Europe was a small place when it came to passing along that kind of knowledge. And it's a powerful science. It's just not the only way to understand the world. The American Indian way of understanding the world is just as powerful. We have our own knowledge base. And we only ask you to respect what we know, even as we try to respect what you all know. But. I want to say that when that worldview made its first beachhead in the Americas, and we could go back to Columbus in the Caribbean, it starts there. The first thing Columbus does is baptize the land, converts the land. And baptism rites are rites of renaming or naming. As Anne McClintock says in her wonderful book, Imperial Leather, Baptism historically has been when a male priest 
informs the woman that being born of a woman is not good enough. You've got to be born of a male priest as well and be baptized, right? I'll take my collar off. <laughs> I need the show and tell. Exactly. You have it. So he was renaming every piece of land he could find and renaming it after his sovereigns back in Spain. It wasn't Spain yet. It's Castile and Aragon, right? Renaming all those places after figures in his, uh, in his divinity, you know, after Jesus, uh, after the saints. So uh, the first island he came to was San Salvador, etc., uh, etc. Et well, the, the Protestants did the same thing. The Episcopals of Jamestown did the same thing. They converted our grandmother into private property. They cut her up into little pieces and turned her into individual ownership. 160 acres, 320 acres, a section, whatever, into towns that were platted and you bring in surveyors to plat it and mark the lines on the land so that you know exactly what land is your personal land. And that's before they began converting the natives to radical European individualism. Mm. And by radical individualism, I mean this thing you all call personal salvation. See, our world is different. Our world is a world of relationship, hmm. first of all. And it's those relationships that are first and foremost. It's part of being in a community so that none of us own the land. We don't have a word in Osage for own. Hmm. We don't have a word for property. We don't have a word for ownership. We merely live on the land in a particular place and in close relationship with our grandmother there. And Tink, in our conversation a few days ago, I do want us to, to kind of home in there. The land is our grandmother. The, you said the grandmother who birthed us in all living things you can no more parcel land into private property than you can make human beings property. Wait, you're a Christian. did, did that. that. So if, if you would expand <laughs> on that, expand on that and expand on what the Euro-Christian worldview consists of in terms of temporality um, and this up-down image schema. Let me start by telling you the story about my fan, mm. the, the adventure we had going into Australia. You know, when you fly into a foreign country, you have this customs form you have to fill out, right? Mm. have to fill one out when you come back to the U.S. Well, the, for some reason, that day, the Australian form was so threatening to me about, do I have any animal parts? But I thought, well, God, 
I want to tell them about my my relative here. My, my relative isn't really an animal part. She's an eagle. Hmm. But, but I guess I, 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 I don't want to get in trouble. I better explain it on this form. So I wrote a long note. <laughs> and so I get off the plane, turn the form in, and uh, a customs official says, what's this animal part? <laughs> I said, sir, that's my, my, my eagle. We ever see it? And so I opened her up, had her in this case, and I said, I please ask you not to touch it, but you can see it. He didn't know what to do. So he called over his supervisor, a young woman, and I explained it all to her, and she didn't know what to do. And it got escalated to the next supervisor, to the next supervisor, to the next, to the next, and finally to the mother of all supervisors, who took me off into a corner uh, uh, of the customs uh, entry port. And he's kind of scratching his head and finally looked up and he said, Mate, are you native? I said, yes, sir, I'm American Indian. He said, get out of here. Man, I grabbed my, my case and <laughs> grabbed my, my relative here. And I, I had a, a guy from Canada, a, a native guy, waiting for me. We were going to catch a cab together. I, I rushed right out so I could <laughs> be on time to catch a cab. So I'm about an hour late. It took that long. Wow. Then, last winter, early last winter, I read in Huffington Post or The Guardian. I can't remember. Probably The Guardian. There was an Australian woman who had been visiting in Europe, who had bought a $19,000 alligator purse. And she forgot to do the proper paperwork, so it was confiscated at border control when she re-entered Australia, and it was destroyed. Now, I was convinced if I have trouble with my relative, I get back on the plane and go home. I suddenly realized maybe that wasn't an option. Mm. Maybe they would have taken my relative and destroyed her. And I have a relationship with this eagle like we have with grandmother. The earth, the land. And suddenly I realized what a bullet I had dodged in Australia, that they could actually have done that. Wow. That's what we mean by relationship. Now, when you, people want to say, oh yeah, we come from farming country back in Illinois or Iowa, we understand the land. No, you don't. Because you've cut the land up into private property and you've made it a tangible piece of self-owned property that you can sell in order to buy a bigger piece of property and have a bigger farm. 
You're not in relationship with grandmother there. As much as you love, the earth can pick up a handful of the loamy soil and pour it out. It's not the same thing as having a relationship with the earth as your grandmother who has birthed you and all living things around you. And that, I want to say, conversion of the land, of grandmother, of the earth, to private property is the beginning of the climate crisis. Mm. Because suddenly, it's about freedom. All these abstract nouns, of which the church knows a great deal, because things like God, good, evil, sin, those are all abstracts. Mm -hmm. But freedom is another one of those abstracts, and it's about freedom. This is my land. You cannot tell me what I can do with it. And if I want to clear-cut the forest here, I can. If it's going to wash into the river and kill salmon, that's your problem. This is my land. Mm. I can clear cut it. I can burn it. And once I clear cut it, I can bring a mining company and we can dig as deep as we want because it's about freedom. And you say, it's not my land, it's the corporation's land. We have a law for that. We'll make the corporation a person. <laughs> not, not one that we're going to preach the gospel to because they're, they're not that much of a person. But legally, they're a person and they can own the land and do whatever the corporation decides they're going to do with the land. You cannot stop them without going through the rigmarole of passing a whole lot of new laws mm -hmm. to control what they do. And then you're going to be accused. See, this is one thing liberals can't do. We cannot engage the rhetoric the way the right wing does. Mm. We're not as good at framing as they are. Because once you start getting those laws passed, well, you're a goddamn socialist, aren't you? And there it is, framed. Mm. For 25 years, my wife and I co-taught a theoretical seminar on something about race. I know we used a textbook called Critical Race Theory. <laughs> I don't recognize it when I read about it in the press today. That's something entirely foreign to me, what they're talking about. We were talking about knowledge, truth, trying to dig sociologically into the racialized makeup of the society of the United States and even all of European society because it's not just the U.S., but it comes out of a half a millennium of European, Euro-Christian colonialism. 
Because you see, a hundred years ago, Europeans controlled 80% of the land mass of the globe. Hmm. Let that sink in. What do you mean we have a climate crisis? We made a lot of money, which is what colonialism was about, right? And colonialism is still here, only it's shape-shifted. It's no longer about controlling the land, it's about controlling economies. Controlling economies in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, in other parts of the world, and exporting the holy gospel of capitalism, Mm. of making money for money's sake. And that has a history too. And it's an anti-Indian history because it's part and parcel of the tide of Euro-Christians who swept across the land, took over all Indian land, pushed Indians aside, pushed us into less productive, they thought, parts of the land. Mm. Dry lands, arid lands, the badlands of South Dakota, the deserts of the Southwest, until they discovered, wait a minute, There's money to be made there, too. And so today, all the way through the Trump administration, going all the way back to Barack Obama, already then his people were negotiating to transfer ownership of what's now federal land, but it's sacred to the San Carlos Apache in Arizona. But you don't own it anymore. It's federal land. We can give it to Resolution Copper, owned by Rio Tinto Zinc, the largest mining corporation in the universe. It doesn't matter that it's Australian. They can blow up that mountain in order to get it a billion dollars worth of zinc that's underneath that mountain. Wow. That's what private property means Mm. eventually. You can blow up that mountain creating all kinds of dust that will float west, east, across New Mexico and Texas, and maybe even into Colorado. Destroy a place that is sacred to the Apache, a place where they go for ceremonies and medicines, just because they signed a treaty, forced to sign that treaty, not understanding that they could not go back to that mountain again, in order to have ceremony. That's just one story. We could talk about lithium. In in western Nevada, northeastern California, along the state line there, where there's billions of dollars worth of lithium, which is critical for the making of batteries, and other electronic devices. And Barack Obama's protege, Joe Biden, promised to make America lithium independent. Hmm. 
in Indian land in, in, in northwestern Nevada along the California northeastern border was his plan. And if they can destroy the land there, they can make America lithium independent. Isn't that great? The unspoken part of that is rich people are going to make a lot of money on it. Indians will have jobs for a couple of years doing the mining. Mm. And if they survive the cancer after that, they may have a nice retirement. But, but the untold message is they've got to survive the cancers that come from engaging that kind of mining. Mm. It starts with private property. And you all never thought about private property until tonight, I bet. You either own a home or you rent a home on property and you assume that the title to that property is secure. How many of you actually own property? The rest of you are all renters, leasers? Mm -hmm. You can do the same thing. You can go back and look at the title for the property where you live. Mm -hmm. Go back and read it. You have to go, it's a little harder to look it up. If you own the property, you can dig it out of your files and read it. And it'll track previous owners of that property all the way back to the first property owner. And the line after that will read something like, Native Title Extinguished. Wow. That simple. We were erased. Native title extinguished. And it may name the treaty. It may not have to name the treaty. Wow. So it starts with Jamestown, with those nice Episcopalians <laughs> who divided up the land into farms, surveyed it, marked the boundaries, and began to write up Deeds, titles for those pieces of property. I hate to say Indians then are victims of your climate crisis hmm. because there's a clamor in Indian country not to play the victim, and you can understand that. <clears throat> but at the same time, we are victims. And when we protest like protesting the Dapple Dakota Access Pipeline mm -hmm. up at, uh, at Standing Rock uh, in North Dakota because it's going under. They tunneled it under the water supply mm -hmm. for that reservation mm -hmm. and all the reservations downstream. They tunneled it under the Missouri River, under a huge lake that was built by the Army Corps of Engineers back in the early 1950s. And Indians were severely beat up when they tried to protest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Young lady here in Denver spent a couple of years in federal prison because she was caught with a, on the protest line, 
with a handgun that uh, uh, we're pretty sure was planted by an FBI uh, informant, wow. a Native American. I mean, we, we've we got those mm. who for, for a dollar, for a paycheck, worked for the FBI and became a friend of, uh, of this woman. Mm. She's not the only one. There are others in prison for protesting. And the states of North Dakota and South Dakota are both trying to pass legislation now to make it illegal for Indians to protest. Wow. So much for freedom of speech. These are Republican states passing Republican uh, legislation to curtail freedom of speech. So you can see freedom of speech and freedom is a really a squidgy uh, abstraction that, that, that even Republicans don't understand. And it's flexible enough that they can go with it one minute and, and absolutely deny it the next, depending on who's asking. of Mile High Theology, and I'm joined by Tink Tinker, Emeritus Professor for Iliff School of Theology, scholar and activist. So Tink, in terms of, I mean, you've said so much. It's, it's so amazing um, and, and informative, you only thoughtful. You gave me a half hour. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, that, that just means we have to have you back. Um, we always want to kind of bring things home if we can. I would really love, if you could, to just put a, a finer point on kind of the two defining features of a Euro-Christian worldview. And in our discussion a few days ago, you said it's temporality yes. is, is very important to that. And then what linguists call an up-down image schema. So if you could contrast um, that with an American yeah. Indian. Yeah. Plus I've already said radical individualism. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. But temporality is crucial. I mean, you were talking about it in terms of renovations at the cathedral. Uh, they have a timeline for getting those renovations done. Mm -hmm. And if they go over time, if they don't, if they don't follow that timeline, it's liable to run into cost overruns. So again, the whole military-industrial complex functions around time. Mm -hmm. You've got to project how long this project is going to take to complete in order to get it funded. And then you've got to value human beings in terms of what their labor is worth. And so you build these things called time clocks. I know it's all done digitally now, but you still have to clock in, right? You might use uh, your, 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 your mobile phone to clock in, but you still clock in so that the... Uh, CFO of the corporation knows 
how much to pay you at the end of the week or end of the month, depending on how they do that. And everyone's different. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> and that's, that's temporality. And if you would contrast that for us with, with a more spatial um, relationship to land and relationships. Let me do it in terms of your, your religion. Hmm. Your masses start, they're always on Sunday, maybe Saturday night. Uh, maybe at certain seasons there's a midweek uh, uh, liturgy. You know us well. Uh, but on Sunday morning, I tell my students that I love, if you can't do a liturgy in 59 minutes and 59 seconds, your bishop is going to have you out on the Kansas state line <laughs> serving a church. <laughs> because you're going to wear out people. <laughs> whose rear ends are not accustomed to sitting for more than an hour. <laughs> it's uh, true. You know, the, the line at the House of Pancakes uh, uh, is getting longer as we sit. <laughs> uh, Indian ceremony Starts around, is, is configured around space, first of all. Mm -hmm. So that uh, my, my uh, we call the Michael over there on the couch, knows our, our Iunglitsi, our sitting with the Stones Lodge, one we have out at Tobo Grounds, south of Denver. It opens to the west. We've also had a lodge out there in the past that opened. In fact, we still have the little lodge out there opens to the east. Hmm. They all open to the east or to the west. Open to the rising sun or the setting sun. Same with all our ceremonies. Used to be true in Christian churches, but not anymore. Uh, the cathedral, what, opens to the south, right? It opens to the north. To the north, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. to the north. Facts. What's mm -hmm. about that, huh? Yeah. The first churches all open to the east. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, the altars were to the east. The door, they opened to the west. But the altars were to the east. And today, in high church circles, they still call the, earth, the altar liturgical east. Mm -hmm. A memory of centuries ago when space did matter before time completely took over. Wow. And for us it's spatial. So, yes, we know exactly when the dancers are to enter the East Gate at our annual Sundance. It has nothing to do with the watch. Mm. has to do with when the sun breaks over the horizon they come in that east gate that's spatial though n n not temporal b because mm -hmm. the Sundance ground is built so that that east gate is where the sun comes up and it's not always going to be the same time that's right 
That's right. It'll be different each of the four days of the dance. Wow. Slightly different, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it'll be different if the dance is held the third weekend in June than if it's held the second weekend in August. Mm. And they're held all over the map because they're not solstice ceremonies per se. It's all about spatiality. And if we mm. dancers go in the East Gate and at the end of the day they go out the East Gate and they don't leave by any other gate, if a dancer's leaving, can't make it four days, there's no shame in that. Somebody will walk them over to the East Gate and somebody over there will collect them and walk them around to make sure they can make it over to the Iungritsi, uh, the, uh, the sitting with the stones lodge to finish their, their obligation. Fascinating stuff. Wow. Temporality versus spatiality. Then there's this business of hierarchy versus what I call collateral egalitarian. Mm -hmm. We're collateral egalitarian. As uh, one of my colleagues over here at CU Denver is fond of reciting every chance he gets to Indian young people. Indian people don't have bosses. We don't have that up-down image schema, hmm. that hierarchy. And it begins with this, this abstraction you all call God, who's the ultimate hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And everyone wants to know, Tink, what's your Osage word for God? The assumption is, Osage is just a code for English. Everybody has God. Mm. That's a human normative category. What's your word for God? And they don't know what to do when I say, we never had one. Till the missionaries came and picked one, and they ruined a really critically important word in Osage by making it stand in for their Christian male sky god. Hmm. That word's Wakonda, which is that energy that courses, that cosmic energy. It courses through the whole of the cosmos, and it's far less abstract, because I can point to Wakonda right here in this room. Wakonda's right here in this woman. Right there in Craig, right there in Kate, even in Broderick. <laughs> maybe. No, huh? Not even maybe. Mm. I mean, I would have to say, you know, uh, e even in, in people like Dick Cheney, mm. whom I, you know, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm playing politics now, I'm letting you know where I stand politically. <laughs> Uh, he made a lot of money off of that Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. His corporation did, even though he was vice president by then. Uh, an another difference is, if we don't have this up-down hierarchy, 
We don't have the down and dirty either. There's no word in my language for evil. Hmm. And that romance metaphor of the cosmic struggle between good and evil, that's your own Christian. I mean, yes, it may occur in other cultures as well, but on this continent, it's intrinsically Euro-Christian. The word they took in Osage to mean evil is biji. It's a word I use when I walk my dog, and my daughter's dog, and she wanders into somebody's front garden area. And I say, Shonge biji. Shonge biji. Bad dog. Bad dog. She's not evil. Mm. Not even Christian theology finds evil in dogs. That's another part of the uh, arrogance mm. of the Euro-Christian worldview. They only find evil in sin and human beings. Mm. I had this argument with a Lutheran theologian, a Lutheran ethicist. Uh, twice now I've had it. She cut me off. She won't talk to me anymore. Uh, the last time I talked to her, I said, what does good and evil have to do with the Andromeda galaxy? What happens to good and evil out there? Well, good and evil is just here. It's cosmic, but it's not really cosmic because mm-hmm. it doesn't involve other planetary systems, other planets, except this one. And in fact, a, a, an evangelical minister was saying just again in public, I've read it before, that if they're aliens, Jesus didn't die for them. Wow. Huh. So a very limited anthropocentric view of God, of salvation, yeah. Yeah. of Yeah. And and of course Indians are not anthropocentric at all. And ideologically a lot of more liberal Christians are abandoning anthropocentrism, but mm-hmm. but it's a hard sell to the uh uh military industrial complex, huh? They ain't buying it because they've got to clear-cut forests. They've got to mine for rare earth minerals, not to say steel and titanium and things to make uh, make weapons out of. So there's an, you might say, there's like an urgency to a Euro-Christian worldview because it's, it's time-centric, it's um, productivity-centric. Well, production, uh, development, those are temporal mm-hmm. notions. Exactly. Temporal abstractions. And I'm trying to find um, <laughs> the, the right way to say we have time for two questions. 
But I feel like that's a Eurocentric. We've got to get someone here involved in the conversation. Exactly. Um, so we have as much time as we need. Um, Tink, thank you. I mean, this is amazing. You, I mean, I could just sit here for ever and just listen. And I told you I'm not in a hurry, but you have time constraints. <laughs> I do want to say one thing that I really appreciate about, about what you're saying. And I think we talked about this a little bit. I think um, even people who are sort of colonized or um, have a Eurocentric worldview, like say I, I grew up in a black church mm -hmm. and, and it's, and black people have a very different understanding of time than white people do. And that, that's kind of like a stereotype and that's a generalization, but you know, in terms of urgency, like we would say church starts at 1030 in my church I grew up in, but it didn't. Like it start, it really started like ten forty five, eleven o'clock, and then you were there all day, mm -hmm. you know, till one, two o'clock. Take a break, go back to church at three thirty, take another break, go back to church at six. Like it, it, it's interesting, kind of the cultures that have been colonized by a Euro Christian mm -hmm. worldview have their own ways of pushing up against that because it, it's not it's not natural to be so time driven for some of them I had an office in a black church in Oakland California um, running a, an Indian project out of out of that office so I, I uh, got invited by the pastor to preach quite often in his absence because he trusted me. Mm. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun because I, I knew that it was like being in an Indian mm. context. Uh, I didn't have to worry about how long I spoke. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that didn't bother them. They seemed to enjoy it too. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's like a... Yeah, it's like something inside of people that just isn't so time-driven. So any, any questions, comments for Tink? Um, thanks for enlightening us. And, uh, cool. and um, I was wondering if you guys, um, sorry, you said that I hope you, if there was... Um, a way of speaking about right and wrong. Because hmm. um, we talked about evil. Sure, you know, right and wrong is easy. Everyone knows the difference between right and wrong. Hmm. Uh, and Osage's children are uh, taught from their infancy about the good of community, hmm. the good of the whole to make decisions predicated on the good of the, uh, of the village, not for my own personal 
good, not, not for my own self-aggrandizement. Uh, see, that makes things easier because from, from then, from, from the very beginning, these kids are learning what their adults do, what the, the men do when they dance, for instance, in a sun dance. They recite uh, this aphorism every day that they dance, that the people might live, so that the dancer's not dancing for the self, but is dancing for all the old people and, and little ones who are standing in the shade under the arbor to support the dancers. Mm. And I was the interpreter at our dance for a few years. And one of the things I would do would be to talk to the dancers and remind the dancers, because they live in a modern world, right? They had to take time off work, off their jobs, to come and dance for mm. these days. Don't you dancers think that this dance is about you? It's not. It's about these people standing in the shade. Taking a break every now and then to go down to the cook shack to eat and have coffee while you're up here fasting. Mm. A dry fast. No food, no water for four days and four nights. Wow. And I'm saying it's not about you. You're doing this for them. Remember that. It'll make you stronger. And white people come in and they see that. They want a piece of the action. They want to come and dance in this dance. The men want to prove their manhood. It's mm. not about that. <laughs> and they think if they dance this dance, Maybe it'll make them shamans. Hmm. And it doesn't do that. It's about the community and not about me and my power. When I was a young man, I had a vision. I never understood it. Didn't tell many people about it because it was my vision. When I finally started talking about it over here at Four Winds to young men, young women, what I told them is, you can do this. It's your heritage. It didn't make me special that I had a vision. It gave me direction in how to work for the well-being of the community. Mm. That's all. And you can do this. And if you come to me and want me to help you, I'll help you do it. I've had a man as uh, young as 13 make that right, that no gijon, that right of vigil. Again, no food and no water. And he did it for two days and two nights, which at 13 is a long time. Yeah. Uh, most adult men will go up for four days and four nights tough, but then you remember you're doing it for the community. Mm -hmm. And you may have your own concerns that you take up. Mm -hmm. A mother, grandmother, who's sick that you're 
thinking about? You wada with those wanagi, talk to those wanagi about your grandma, but you're up there for the sake of the community. The first time I ever did that, uh, 35 years ago, was up at Rosebud Reservation. And when I came down off the hill and finished that ceremony, there were people from that reservation whom I barely knew. I knew some of them, but some people I barely knew came up to me and shook my hand and said, thank you, thank you. Thank you for doing this. You've helped us. Thank you. Taught me a great deal about what I had done, <laughs> that it wasn't for me. Because I was young enough then, I was just doing it to be culturally intact. Mm -hmm. That's when I had that vision. I didn't know what to make of it because nobody had prepared me for making sense out of a vision. Mm -hmm. And indeed, nobody's ready for that. You have to live it. That's the responsibility. From then on, you have to live that vision. Anybody else? Yes. Over the last many hundred years, people from many other parts of the world besides Europe have come to this continent. And Braddock sort of mentioned the ways in which the African-American culture pushes back against the European Christian norms. Do you think that the arrival of all these immigrants from all these other places has changed the Euro-Christian way of doing things here? Hmm. Good question. That is a good question, and, and it's not an easy question to answer. I guess I would finally end up saying that, that uh, the Euro-Christian worldview is so dominant and so powerful on this continent that it swallows up everything. Mm. Uh, can the worldview change is another question that's equally hard to answer. Mm because you can't change your worldview. It's like changing your birth language. How long would it take you to leave English behind <laughs> and become so fluent in another language, say Mandarin, that you no longer speak English? That's the job of changing your worldview. Wow. But we, what we can do and must do is identify useful ideologies that we can cling to, like anti-anthropocentrism, and begin working towards that shift in worldview in the next generation, or the next, or the next. The Haudenosaunee people and the uh, Northeast, talk about the seventh generation mm. and their ethical guiding principle is making decisions predicated on how it will affect the seventh generation from now. Mm. That's critically important. And that's what shifting a worldview is going to take, seven generations. Uh, but we can begin to fight for changes in political policy. Hmm. 
changes in the way people talk. For instance, I'm fighting my own colonization because we're colonized. So about the time I had that adventure with my eagle sister here, my grandmother, I decided there's a couple of words that we don't have in Osage that are very, very common in English. I'm going to quit using them. I'm still trying. Mm. One word is the word it. My relative is not an it. She has a gender. Mm. She's alive as much now as when she was totally connected and flying over the earth. So there are all kinds of others related to it. Thing, object, stuff. There are just no counterparts in an Indian language. Mm. We don't talk about things. Uh, there was an elder up at Stony Indian Reservation in, in Manitoba, Canada, who once said, uh, do you know the trees talk? They do. If you can learn how to listen to them, mm. they have a lot to say. So 20 years ago, I wrote an essay titled The Consciousness of Rocks, in which I posed his question in a different way. Do you know that rocks can talk? They do. Those are our relatives. My daughter, who's now in the seventh grade, has been fighting every year until now to convince each of her teachers from kindergarten on that rocks are not inert. Hmm. See, there's Western physical science. Mm -hmm. Rocks are non-biotic. They're inert. And she says, no, they're not. And teachers all. Oh, one teacher said this is a couple years ago. I guess we should acknowledge that some people believe that rocks are alive. I went in to see the teacher. I said, we do not believe rocks are alive. That's our knowledge base. We know that. Mm. So don't belittle us by saying we believe it. That's your world. We don't even have that word in Osage. Belief. Faith. Those are abstracts we don't have. So you see, there's a lot of work I had in terms of coming up with ideologies that can move you all down the road. But yes, worldviews change. They change during the Renaissance. That's when Europe became radically individualized. Actually, early pre-Renaissance, I'm arguing, mm -hmm. it happened after 1352. 1348 to 1352, a quarter of those five years, a quarter of the population of Europe died. Out of that trauma emerged radical individualism. Hmm. So that, what are the earliest painters you can name? Leonardo, Raphael, all those guys. When did they live? The Renaissance. Hmm. 
That's when artists begin signing their works. We don't know who composed songs in the 11th, 12th century. We know theologians who wrote, because that has a longer Greek philosophical history. But by and large, artistic compositions, whether paintings or, or music, it starts with the Renaissance. We can name the artist. So worldviews do change, and this worldview can change. But the climate crisis is on us now. We need to act now, and it's not going to be taken care of without some assault on the Euro-Christian worldview. Anthropocentrism. The ownership of property. These are things people don't even give a second thought to. And yet, ownership of property is what fuels the military-industrial complex. Let's give a hand to Tink. Amazing. Roderick, you've honored me by inviting me. Thank you for that. Mao High Theology is a production of St. John's Cathedral, an Episcopal community of faith in Denver. I offer special thanks to our guest, Dr. Tink Tinker, our community partners at Redline Contemporary Arts Center, our producer and cathedral communications director, Evans Owsley, our program coordinator, Christina Rutland, and you, our loyal listeners. Please rate and review Malahi Theology on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. On September 27th at Redline Art Gallery, we're going to be welcoming Leela Poirier, who is a youth council member for Earth Guardians. And Earth Guardians is an organization that inspires and trains diverse youth to be effective leaders in the environmental, climate, and social justice movements. She'll join us to talk a little bit about how Indigenous youth are involved in activists within the climate crisis, as well as looking out for the tokenization of Indigenous people within climate activism as well as youth.